1: Right, welcome back to Her Tell. Okay, let's have a little bit of fun. Let's talk some culture. Let's talk some movies. He goes to the movies, so I don't have to because I can just read what he wrote about it, and then I don't get out of it. It's cheaper. Let the kids go. They can explain it to me. Our good, good friend. He is great. He is a cinephile. He has an excellent substack and other writings. Luis Mendez, back on the show, back on Her Tell. Welcome, my friend. Good to have you back.
2: Hey, thanks for having me back. Uh, it's a little hot down here in Florida. It's 80 degrees. It's considered cool right now. Uh, but it, if you can't hit the pool or the beach, it's a good time to go to uh, the movies and uh, enjoy the AC. Yeah,
1: I've actually been joking. We've been getting so much rain. It's been like thunderstorm every afternoon. I'm like, we're having Florida weather. It's like thunderstorm every single day, no matter what. Let's start big picture before we talk about individual movies, though, because this is kind of the first full year of non-COVID stuff. People are coming back to the theaters. Now, we had Top Gun, which has just been a massive, massive hit by any metric you want to use. One of the biggest movies of all time. People are saying the movies are back. I don't know that Top Gun's a good measure for that because of how unique it was, because of the buildup, up because of, we all know the 38-year wait, all that fun stuff. Take Top Gun out. What kind of a year is the theater experience really having, though?
2: I mean, I, I would argue that it's definitely have has bounced back, uh, especially compared to last year. Last year, there were a lot of ups and downs, uh, especially for adult dramas. Uh, but I, I think I saw a stat that it's actually right now running ahead of 2019 box office, which is crazy to me because 2019 was a year where it was just a bunch of billion dollar movies dominating the that summer, I remember that was the year where it seemed like there was an event film coming out every week and they started cannibalizing each other at the box office. But um, I, 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 don't, I, wanted, I want to be careful to say the movies are back myself because there's still a lot of things that are in play now regarding streaming, regarding uh, IPs, uh, compared to uh, smaller films. That are still there that being said this past weekend there was a movie that came out called uh, where the crawdad sing uh now if that movie came out last year i think it wouldn't have done too well it's it's doing a little bit better than expected and it seems to be showing that maybe we're starting to get some older audiences back to the movie theaters compared to last year so i think that maybe in terms of getting back to more consistent box office and more consistent audiences all around were there but it doesn't mean that a lot of the issues that a lot of these art tour directors have been complaining about uh you know have gone away they're still there
1: let's use where the crawdad sings real quick obviously that was a monster book uh, well-known book that's been adapted it's a they call it a mystery thriller but that's kind of a little bit of a misnomer for the kind of movie is it's a very specific movie i don't want to give away because it's a very intricate plot but you were tweeting about it and this is a good example of something we're talking about it here you were tweeting about how the audience scores and the tomato meter and you can explain to folks what the tomato meter is but that's become just about as important as any critic in america really in a lot of ways the dispersion between those two things and this movie really kind of brought it out just break that down for folks and use this example of Once again, we kind of see where the audience scores and the critic scores and the online scores, these things aren't always matching up on movies nowadays, are they?
2: Well, no, because, well, mainly because uh, it's a subjective art form. I know there's some critics out there that seem to forget about that and they treat it like uh, it's got to be this uh, perfect thing and you're not allowed to disagree with each other about certain movies, but... So the tomato meter has really taken over what used to be the big thing, which was Roger Ebert's thumbs up, thumbs down. That used to be, I remember growing up, that was all over all the movie posters. They get thumbs up from Ebert and they would talk about it. Uh, Well, what happened is, is that now the tomato meter is taken over from Rotten Tomatoes. And basically what it is is that they, they aggregate critical ratings and they say, how many uh, critics said that they generally liked the movie? How many said they generally disliked the movie? And what's happened is that since the site got bought up by uh, Fandango, they've created an uh, uh, option for audiences to get involved. Um, and I think it's a great um, metric to see what audiences are feeling like compared to critics. Uh, and I think it actually comes in handy during the awards season when you're trying to figure out the difference between critical um, awards and industry awards. And where The thinks is a great example of something that sometimes happens where uh, it's like in the 30s with critics on Rotten Tomatoes, but it's in the high 90s with audiences. And when you see that kind of disconnect, it really drives home that just because critics, and I, and I say this as an aspiring movie critic myself, just because critics like or don't like a movie doesn't necessarily mean that audiences won't react differently to that movie. Uh, a good example of this from last year, uh, out of a lot of good examples from last year, is The Green Knight. Uh, critics loved that movie, audiences did not respond well to that movie. And when industry awards came and a lot of people, a lot of fellow critics were complaining, wondering, well, where's Green Night? Where's Green Night? Why no love for Green Knight? There's no look for Green Knight because industry voters tend to be more like audiences and they don't they didn't like the movie as much as the critics did. We saw that with Power of the Dog. One of the big reasons Power of the Dog melted down at the end, because and I say this is someone who liked the movie. Uh, its audience scores are awful. Uh, and so we're seeing that right now with the tomato meter, I think, has been a really good tool. Uh, it seems to annoy some cinephiles out there uh, because it kind of shows the gap between audiences and hardcore film fans. But I think it's a good metric. I, I love it. And um, it, it, it it also helps you to not get so stuck in your bubble if you're like part of film Twitter like I am and kind of see what general audiences are thinking.
1: This goes along the line. Luis Mendez joining us. Uh, your last piece for Ordinary-Times.com. Every uh, every couple months, you touch in on your awards things. And the latest one, you touched on this, and I think it goes together with what you're saying is, it, it's a thing now, almost every year at the Oscars, when you start putting together your list, there's going to be that non-traditional, populist, popular uh, movie that's going to get some kind of a nomination just by general proclamation. It's it's a real thing now for the Oscars. They're going to put that one fan-favorite film in there somewhere to try to get a little bit of attention, right? That, that, that's a trend.
2: Yeah, and, and it also helps when uh, these movies stay... They um it's always tends to be a movie that somehow explodes to a way where it's almost like the academy can't ignore it so what happens is that a bunch of voters who maybe would have dismissed it as a genre film go and watch it and they end up really liking it themselves they put it in their top 10 list they submit their ballots and it ends up getting nominated arguably dune was that movie last year uh, even though I would say this is a little bit more artsy in comparison to others. But then you have things like Mad Max Fury Road a couple of years ago, Black Panther, the big one back in 2018. Um, it's it, it, And the question is for me every year, what is going to be that one genre film? And now that we have the slate where you have to have 10 nominees, I think there's a very real possibility where we could have maybe this year, maybe next where even, even two of those kind of movies sneak in.
1: Talk about the Academy for a second, since we're on the subject. Let's just take Top Gun because most people have seen it or at least know what it is. It's such a monster movie. Um, It's going to be one of the all-time movies. The average audience that goes and watches Top Gun, you can just tell the way it was filmed, the way it's almost all live action. There's almost no CGI in it, very little CGI. You can't even notice it unless you're looking for it. The way that movie was made, there's nobody in their right mind could look at that and go, this isn't an achievement in filmmaking, even the average person. However, that's not always how the Academy looks at it. I'm sure it's going to rack up technical awards. Talk about how the Academy views movie making the art form as opposed to movie making the technical form. Because I think something like Top Gun is really where it starts intersecting and it gets confusing because nobody didn't watch that movie and go, my God, this is just visually gorgeous to look at. It's an experience, right? So where did those start going art and the technical part of it? Because the Academy, most of those awards are supposed to be technical awards. We focus on the artsy part of it. They don't always all go together in a good ball, do they?
2: I mean, no, uh, I mean, I could write a whole book about why I think such as the Academy is like not in touch. You with should, what by the way, I would buy in movie. <laughs> about the regular move, how the, the disconnected they are from the regular movie goer. And which, by the way, a lot of people think it's a modern thing. You could go back all the way to the beginning. Of the Academy Awards and see things that did not age well for them, uh, winners that didn't age well, uh, movies that people go "how will nerf, did not not get nominated for Best Picture that year. Uh, I think what happens is that it's very easy, and and us movie fans, movie critics, cinephiles who do our best uh, movies of the year list at the end, we do this too. Uh, I wrote a piece about Ebert and uh, Robert, uh, I mean, me, uh, Ebert and Siskel over at Ordinary Slash Times, and I even mentioned this about when you look at some of these old best of the year lists, you get so caught up in the moment of that year that sometimes you don't think about the fact that we don't know what movies are going to age a certain way. We don't know what movies are going to go on to become certain types of classics. And uh, I'll probably, I actually think about writing a piece on this over at ordinary times uh, where I think there's different kinds of classics. There's those movies that uh, we grow up with uh, are part of the culture. And there are those movies that you got to really be a hardcore cinephile to know that they're out there and, and, you know, show something books like the 1000 movies to watch before you die and stuff like that. Uh, so I think since the Academy gets caught up in that, and what is this art form uh, in the art form sort of uh, part of the movie industry? What what's that movie that we're going to the film students are going to be learning about down the line? And sometimes they don't stop and think about, well, what are the movies that we're going to be showing our kids and their kids are gonna be, and those kids are gonna be passing it down to their kids and we're gonna be seeing on network TV. That's a whole other thing. And I, some people say that the academy should become more insular. Believe it or not, there are people who have made that argument. I personally think that it doesn't, that all hope is not lost, even though I do know that obviously there's some of that audience you're never gonna get back. Um, I think Top Gun is the perfect intersection to be that movie where they they like the story, they like the script, they like the the art form. And I think one of the big reasons among many that it does have a chance to actually get nominated for Best Picture um, is because it almost serves as almost like a difference to the Marvel situation that's going on right now. Because it's not a CGI spectacle, but it is a summer blockbuster. It is a genre film, and it shows kind of this idea that you don't have to be a big superhero movie. You don't have to be this big CGI skep- uh, spectacle to be this successful. And it's, I think there's going to be a lot of industry voters, some who maybe have their grudges with Marvel, whatever, or are not happy with the direction of the blockbuster. I think there are going to be some who are really going to respond to that as this movie is sort of our delight at the end of the tunnel of that we can make blockbusters that don't have to have CGI all over it. We They don't have to have superheroes. And I think that's why it has a real chance to become that populist film that makes it into the best picture slate.
1: Yeah, there's always a little bit of politics no matter which way you go. And I'll repeat myself. He's not going to get an Oscar, but one of the other lesser awards. I'd love to see Miles Taylor get something or at least some nominations somewhere in there because I, yeah. I just thought he was amazing in that. That movie don't work without him. I know it's Tom Cruise on the headline, but he made that puppy go.
2: He might have a shot at sad, because SAG because yeah, like yeah, SAG sometimes gives a, a better... SAG and PGA seem to get better uh, props to the genre films.
1: Yeah, but it's, it's a great movie, but um one more thought on this kind of stream of thought on on the academy though what does the academy because you know we know what the ratings are we know the thing what does the academy do to bring back normal viewers without it being a pandering thing because my concern is anything they're going to try to do is probably going to come off cringy at best and pandering at worst, and it's probably going to make it worse what practically could they actually do besides just nominating a top gun or something that's just obviously a great movie that everybody loves how can they change? Is it just too institutional? What can they do here that wouldn't come off bad?
2: Yeah, I'm, well, this is a heated debate every year over at awards Twitter. Uh, I'm firmly tend to be in the uh, <clears throat> I tend to be the unpopular opinion among a lot of those folks. A lot of those folks say forget it. Just just embrace the insularity and, and forget about the regular movie goer. I think that all oh, hope is not lost. Uh, I do agree that sometimes they can come off cringe. I think they completely filled with this Oscar fan favorite thing. I think that could have been something really cool where they had given props to genre films that people had seen, gotten more people interested. And instead it became this mess where a bunch of Snyder fans basically trolled the voting process, which is a horrible voting process. I don't know what on earth made them think that we should to allow people multiple votes. And, and it led to... Uh, the, uh, the fan favorite being uh, Justice League and no disrespect. I'm, well, I'm not trying to disrespect Justice League or, or Zack Snyder here, but the Academy obviously was trying to see if they could give some props to say uh, Spider-Man No Way Home, which was more of a big cultural footprint last year. Uh, I, I think that they, first of all, I do think that they can make that fan favorite thing work if they just tinker with it a little so that they don't uh, have some of the, the situation that happened last year uh, I also think that they need to be more open to award to giving genre films uh, love. Uh, top Gun Maverick would be a good start because if if we're if, at the rate things are going, Top Gun Maverick is looking like it'll probably be the top domestic box office movie of the year. We have not had a top box office domestic movie of the year get nominated for best picture since Black Panther. Uh, it's going so I, I think that they need to uh, embrace that uh more and not seem so out of touch also when they have their shows um don't go out of your way to try to pander i agree with that the tonys recently have enjoyed some big ratings boost and what they've done is that they've they've done some performance they do the performances They don't pander. They try to celebrate what they're what they're awarding instead of making jokes about them. And I think that would go a long way. You're not going to get everybody back because of uh, the way things have changed and how people watch things. Uh, And it's going to take years to get that crowd back. You're not going to get them like back overnight. But I do think it's possible. I'm not I haven't given up hope uh, like some others seem to. But at the rate they're going the Oscars are just gonna get end up becoming uh probably streaming online for us niche fans.
1: Yeah, and I'm no I'm not a big Broadway guy, but the Tonys are fun. Like if you you watch the clips and stuff, they figured out a way to make them fun. And yeah. if there's nothing fun about the Oscars, it's a slog. No, they got to figure no. out some way to make it at least semi-fun. Talking to our buddy Louis Mendez, our Cinephile, our movie expert. Uh, we're gonna get back into Marvel uh for Love and Thunder. A lot of debate about it. He had the hottest of hot takes. He defends it next on Hertel.
2: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus,
1: Uh, Welcome back to Hurt Tell. Okay, sometimes you just lose control of your own program. This is going to be one of those instances. Luis Mendez joining us. All right, buddy. Thor, Love and Thunder, go.
2: Okay, so I have to say I am stunned that this movie has become one of the more divisive MCU movies um it's it's uh, for a lot of people this is a low tier MCU film because I remember when the reactions were coming out initially to the world premiere I was seeing people who usually are not big MCU fans giving good reviews to the movie I saw people who didn't like Ragnarok uh give good reviews to the movie so I thought oh this is going to be a big hit this is going to be a big critical hit for the MCU. It's going to make great money. Well, it's going to make great money regardless. Um, but then as I watched the weekend come in and I saw that letterbox score go down, the cinema score came in at B+, plus, which is not bad, but it's not, you, you want that A grade if you want to get really, really great word of mouth. And I started talking to more people. I started realizing this is going to be a, a very divisive movie Um among the Marvel fandom, among general audiences and such. All I can say is is that for me, the movie worked incredibly. It is right now my number three of the year. Um, I thought it was not as good as Ragnarok, but pretty close to it. I loved Christian Bale's performance as the villain. Uh, I liked that the movie hit on themes of faith, uh, finding meaning in life, sacrifice, Coming to terms with one's mortality and all those kind of things, um, I will admit, and I think it's one of the big reasons why Thor movies can at times end up being the more divisive movies of the franchise. They have taken the direction with him where they've decided he's going to be a comedic character compared to when they first introduced him. And some people have it's it hasn't worked with them. And Tyka's humor sometimes can be a little over the top and be a little forced and I will say there are times in the movie where I could pick apart and say they were going they were clearly going for forced comedy here but for me I thought the movie was a blast and it probably helped that I was with an audience that really was having a lot of fun with the movie I know that I've heard stories of audiences where the jokes were not landing uh, but for my audience they were they actually clapped when the credits hit, which took me aback because uh, it's been a while since I've gotten that experience at a movie theater, even with some of the big hits like No Way Home and Top Gun. Uh, I thought it was a great movie. I thought it was fun, great soundtrack. Um, it also probably helps that I'm a massive Thor fan. He's one of my favorites of the MCU characters. But I I don't know what else to say. There, there, every year, there's that one movie that is getting kind of mi- mixed reviews uh that ends up in my favorites of the year list but and and, and honestly I think you shouldn't trust any critic that doesn't have at least one of those movies on their list because you should be able to go against the crowd a couple times but for me it's it's one of my favorite movies of the year one of my favorite genre films and for me it was top tier MCU see you
1: I think this I think Thor's kind of a microcosm that it, I think it's a fair criticism that Marvel's had a little bit of an identity crisis post-endgame here. I think the Thor franchise is a good example of it because you mentioned it. They've turned him into a comedic character in a lot of ways. Part of that's because of how Hemsworth acts it. Because, and I'm that's not a knock. I think he's great. Yeah. He's, he's owned the role. But remember, they made him that way because the audience demanded it after the first two Thor films. So they kind of made their own boat with this. Marvel reacted to it. But I think that's part of you know the if you can say a multi-billion dollar franchise has problems they do have a bit of an identity crisis and the Thor series kind of shows it is like you've got four really different films here and it's just kind of showing you know Marvel sometimes for all their planning and all their stage one two three six whatever we're on now they sometimes have trouble holding the course because they do try to navigate the audience and the audience is fickle
2: more even with a big property like that doesn't they? Well, I think I, I agree 100% that they seem to be having identity crisis. I think I even mentioned, I tweeted about this, that it really feels like after Endgame, they don't really have a, a direction. Now, I know that there were stories that Feige got together with his team to kind of plan things out. But I I, I really get the feeling that they, they haven't admitted that they didn't necessarily have a plan for phase four. Because all I've been seeing are a lot of what, you could argue as sort of failure stories. There doesn't seem to be any like thing that's connecting everything together, like you started to see after the first Avengers movie. And I I think it's also one of the reasons that it hurts the movies. They've raised this bar of this is how you build a cinematic universe. You plan it all out. You make all the movies linked together. That they kind that they've kind of are having trouble to reach that bar on a consistent level and that's one of the things that could lead to them maybe finally eventually losing the audience um because i I, like i said on a previous uh visit here before that's not going to happen overnight it's going to take years for that to happen and if this keeps happening if they don't write the ship if they don't get a consistent um big bad or whatever they have to do to uh, connect these movies I think you're going to be seeing this situation where we're seeing a lot of phase four movies uh maybe with with the exception of maybe uh Shang-Chi and uh, No Way Home a lot of phase four movies are becoming pretty divisive where there are some who say this is a low-tier movie and then there are others who say oh no this is one of my new favorites and um I think that, I agree I think that could become an issue for them down the road
1: yeah but this is the problem is In Game was You know, when you have a movie called Endgame and you save the half the universe, you you can't get another big bad like that. It's like it's like Spielberg. I can't remember the quote, but when he was making Temple of Doom and everybody was crushing him for Temple of Doom, he's, he's like, well, look, we did Raiders of the Lost Ark and we used God to defeat the Nazis. Now, what do you do? Like, there's no there's nothing bigger than that. What do you do now? I think that's part of Marvel's problem. Disney's got this problem with Star Wars right now, too, by the way. You know, once you've blown up the Death Star three times, now what do you do? you know, there's only so many big bads. And if you can't do some, you know, character development stuff and things like that, I I, I think they just kind of run out of material
2: at some point, yeah. I, oh, It's definitely possible. Another thing that comes to mind is uh, as someone who watches uh, anime and reads manga, that's a thing that always shows up with a lot of their properties where you, you make the threat bigger and bigger and bigger for each story arc as it goes. And you get to a certain point where it's like, How on earth can you top this? Because it almost gets to the point sometimes where it goes from saving the neighborhood. And next thing you know, you're saving the entire universe. And which they literally, that's what's happened to the MCU. Um, So at that point, I would argue that what they probably should do is to try to create more insular uh, stories and, and more grounded stories. But, They've raised, like I said, they've raised the bar so high that I, it's going to be hard for them to meet it. Uh, now, supposedly, again, there are reports that Feige and his team have gotten together and they've built up a, a 10 year plan. Uh, I think that's pretty darn cocky, uh, considering that we don't know what's going to be in 10 years. Think about this. Ten years ago, the MCU was at the first Avengers movie. And that movie, even that movie didn't reach the heights of some of these MCU movies are hitting now so we that's pretty cocky to know that you're still going to be relevant in 10 years uh, so it's going to be interesting but I do agree that if this is the beginning of the MCU kind of winding down we may in hindsight look back and say mm, they probably should have ended it after Endgame
1: yeah and I don't think it's going to go away I just think it'll go from mainstream to a little bit more of a niche thing um, it, it's not it's going to still make money let's not over yeah yeah but I think that... Um... In manga my my kids all into that and reads that so i know a little bit about it but i don't fully understand it what's the difference between something like a star wars and a marvel where they have these runs and they tend to kind of burn the audience out but then and i understand there's a huge cultural difference so i'll put that up front you get something like one piece that's been going for what 25 years now yes you know, they they've figured out how to do that is it one of those things where they just don't get a circadian rhythm to it, and they just build to the big thing, and then because the problem with building to the big thing is you have the big cliff on the back, and they don't think about having a steady rhythm over a course of time? Is that the issue with it, maybe?
2: Well, uh, well, the thing is, is, well, one piece is also helped by the fact that they're uh, the artist and writer for that uh, Oda. He's done an incredible job of planning that thing out, and the thing is that there is a. No pun intended. End game to a lot of these mangas, uh, where they they ended at a certain point. It's time to end it. If you you could argue that Avengers End Game should have been that endpoint, and what I think these mangas do better is that when they build certain things up, they and they get to the end, it's accepted. They there was recently a manga that actually surpassed one piece for a little bit there called Demon Slayer. And it, but it ended just as it was surpassing it, and people were like, "Why not continue this momentum?" And they were, the creator was like, "Cause the story's over; it's done. I have no, there's no more story to tell." And, the, and maybe the MCU can definitely learn from that. Star Wars can maybe learn from that, especially since they keep seemingly going back to the Skywalker saga. Um, I would like to see them do more other story, different stories, um, and so I, maybe they could learn from that. But something like One Piece, you know, that's one overarching story that he's been able to really do well with and but it's wrapping up it's already been announced that this next saga is going to be the finale so even that's can't last forever
1: yeah and uh nothing wrong with stealing from the japanese because if people understood how much of our film comes from Kirshia like <laughs> yeah. everything you've ever seen was stolen from those guys uh one more thing before we let you go Luis mendez our movie guy uh, we can't talk about movies without talking about streaming you did it in your latest review talking about eh, this movie wasn't that good they probably should have just streamed it instead of putting it in theaters uh, back you know I'm going to show my age here you know direct the video instead of sending it in yeah. the theaters this is not a new problem this is just a new spin on the problem but Netflix a lot of trouble since they lost a lot of their outside content back to the original creators because everybody's got their own platform now There's a lot of money getting thrown at the streaming sites, and it's starting to look like they're not getting the return in in investment. Amazon's got the GDP of a small country wrapped up on this Lord of the Rings show that's getting ready to come out. Uh, Netflix is still spending money hand over fist, but they did start cutting down on staff and overhead a little bit. Are we starting to see kind of the cap out on the streaming where they're going to have to adjust down to whatever the next stage of streaming is?
2: I think, I think, yes. I think it's a reaction to everyone and their mom now having a streaming service. Uh, I mean, it's, it's incredible when I find out that some of these networks are now have streaming services. Uh, it, and I think COVID uh, the, and the pandemic era didn't help uh, things either because I think it, it just accelerated uh, the trend. Uh, every uh, of everybody having streaming services and now, but I think what you're seeing now is that the streaming services are now fi- figuring out more and more that they're going to have to create their own content. Now Netflix ain't Disney. Disney's got an entire library of Disney animated. I'm, I'm currently right now binging all the core Disney animated movies. I could just go on Disney Plus and watch them all. Um, HBO Max got a whole library of like stuff from Criterion and Warner Brothers and stuff like that. Netflix is trying to create their own content and they've been having and they've been struggling at times sometimes, especially with some of the money they're throwing at some of these projects. Now you're seeing it with Amazon, where they're saying where they're going all in on these big t- uh, series. Uh, Apple TV from the get go has been trying to be just driven by their content, uh, their own content. And, and they've been doing pretty well. I mean, they just literally won Best Picture at the Oscars. Um and which I'm surprised. I, I, I was very skeptical if Apple TV would find an audience, but they, they somehow have. Well, it's probably because of the uh, the Apple fanatics also probably helped. Um, but uh I think this is what they call the streaming wars now. It's it's not unlike what used to be when networks were like going to war with each other and going big for ratings and stuff like that, but I agree with you. I think you have to be careful because at a certain point, it's, you 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 spend so much money that before you know it, you're not getting much return on investment. I mean, I'm because I've been thinking about this a lot when you mentioned to me uh a, a affair of that what is it six hundred million dollars put into this Lord of the Rings show?
1: And they signed up five seasons in advance, and there's no source material. It's utterly insane what they're doing.
2: Yeah, and it's like so. I'm thinking, it's like, how do you know? How do you get a return on six hundred million dollars? How do you calculate that based on trying to make it so that this thing is so much seed that you everybody's going to be on Prime? You know, that's the kind of thing that I guess that, that they're obviously banking on. But it, I, I, all I could say is that these streaming wars are really ramping up, and I, I really think that we may have not even seen the tip of the iceberg on where these people are willing to go.
1: Yeah. And we're going to see that right now because they're renegotiating the streaming sports rights to almost everything. It's something that hadn't been talked about. That's a big chunk of money for these streamers too. Lewis Mendez. We love having him on. Hey, the movies are meant to be an escape and the way the breaking news has been lately. We love a little bit of escape, love bringing him on, love talking movies, let folks know where they can follow you, buddy. We're going to make you a regular on this show. Cause we love talking movies with you, especially me, because then I don't have to go see them and I know what's going on. I can (laughs) dazzle my children with what I know about the movies. Thank you, Wikipedia. Uh, Let folks know where they can follow you, your excellent reviews that you do. Uh, You also occasionally write at ordinary-times.com. Let them know your social media as well, my friend.
2: Uh, well, uh, ba- basically my main hub is my Substack right now. 100% free. Don't worry. You don't have to pay for it. Uh, Mendismoviereport.substack.com. I have all my links to all my social media there. I'm still trying to work on getting some YouTube content uh, for any big movie fans, kind of where I can show my rankings and stuff. But social media-wise, uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, if any of you out there have a letterbox, Mendismovierpt, that's where you can find me.
1: Yeah, he does great work. We always enjoy having you. Get that YouTube going. Make sure to let us know. We'll follow it because we're big fans. Luis Mendez, thank you so much, buddy. You try. I I saw you out on the jet skis. Very Miami of you. You just yeah. you try try to tone down your lifestyle there. You're making us all feel bad about it, buddy.
2: No, no. I'm I'm out in uh St. Pete next to St. Oh, St. Pete. Pete. I'm sorry. Yeah.
1: Pete. Oh, you're on that side. Okay. I got to get down to Tampa. See everybody. <laughs> all right, buddy. Thank you for the time. You do great work,
2: sir. Oh hey, hey I'm ha- always happy to be here.
1: Yeah, you do good work. Appreciate you, my friend. Talk soon.
2: Thanks.
0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things.